The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. Introduction. We Americans devour eagerly any piece of writing that purports to tell us the secret of success in life. Yet how often we are disappointed to find nothing but commonplace statements, or recipes that we know by heart, but never follow. Most of the life stories of our famous and successful men fail to inspire us because they lack the human element that makes the story record real and brings the story within our grasp. While we are searching far and near for some Aladdin's lamp to give coveted fortune, there is ready at our hand, if we will only reach out and take it, like the charm in Milton's Comus, unknown and like esteemed and dull swain, treads on it daily with his clouted shoon. The interesting, human, and vividly told story of one of the wisest and most useful lives in our history, and perhaps in any history, in Franklin's autobiography, is offered not so much a ready-made formula for success as the companionship of a real flesh-and-blood man of extraordinary mind and quality whose daily walk and conversation will help us to meet our own difficulties, much as does the example of a wise and strong friend. While we are fascinated by the story, we absorb the human experience through which a strong and helpful character is building. The thing that makes Franklin's autobiography different from every other life story of a great and successful man is just this human aspect of the account. Franklin told the story of his life, as he himself says, for the benefit of his posterity. He wanted to help them by the relation of his own rise from obscurity and poverty to eminence and wealth. He is not unmindful of the importance of his public services and their recognition, yet his accounts of these achievements are given only as a part of the story and the vanity displayed is incidental and in keeping with the honesty of the recital. There is nothing of the impossible in the method and practice of Franklin as he sets them forth. The youth who reads the fascinating story is astonished to find that Franklin in his early years struggled with the same everyday passions and difficulties that he himself experiences, and he loses the sense of discouragement that comes from a realization of his own shortcomings and inability to attain. There are other reasons why the autobiography should be an intimate friend of American young people. Here they may establish a close relationship with one of the foremost Americans, as well as one of the wisest men of his age. The life of Benjamin Franklin is of importance to every American, primarily because of the part he played in securing the independence of the United States and in establishing it as a nation. Franklin shares with Washington the honors of the Revolution and the events leading to the birth of the new nation. While Washington was the animating spirit of the struggle in the colonies, Franklin was its ablest champion abroad. To Franklin's cogent reasoning and keen satire, we owe the clear and forcible presentation of the American case in England and France. While to his personality and diplomacy, as well as his facile pen, we are indebted for the foreign alliance and the funds without which Washington's work must have failed. His patience, fortitude, and practical wisdom, coupled with self-sacrificing devotion to the cause of his country, 
are hardly less noticeable than similar qualities displayed by Washington. In fact, Franklin as a public man was much like Washington, especially in the entire disinterestedness of his public service. Franklin is also interesting to us because by his life and teachings he has done more than any other American to advance the material prosperity of his countrymen. It is said that his widely and faithfully read maxims made Philadelphia and Pennsylvania wealthy, while poor Richard's pithy sayings, translated into many languages, have had a worldwide influence. Franklin is a good type of our American manhood. Although not the wealthiest or the most powerful, he is undoubtedly, in the versatility of his genius and achievements, the greatest of our self-made men. The simple yet graphic story in the autobiography of his steady rise from humble boyhood in a tallow chandler shop, by industry, economy, and perseverance in self-improvement, to eminence, is the most remarkable of all the remarkable histories of our self-made men. It is in itself a wonderful illustration of the results possible to be attained in a land of unequalled opportunity by following Franklin's maxims. Franklin's fame, however, was not confined to his own country. Although he lived in a century notable for the rapid evolution of scientific and political thought and activity, yet no less a keen judge and critic than Lord Jeffrey, the famous editor of the Edinburgh Review, a century ago, said that, in one point of view, the name of Franklin must be considered as standing higher than any of the others which illustrated the 18th century. Distinguished as a statesman, he was equally great as a philosopher, thus uniting in himself a rare degree of excellence in both these pursuits, to excel in either of which is deemed the highest praise. Franklin has indeed been aptly called many-sided. He was eminent in science and public service, in diplomacy and in literature. He was the Edison of his day, turning his scientific discoveries to the benefit of his fellow men. He perceived the identity of lightning and electricity and set up the lightning rod. He invented the Franklin stove, still widely used, and refused to patent it. He possessed a masterly shrewdness in business and practical affairs. Carlyle called him the father of all the Yankees. He founded a fire company, assisted in founding a hospital, and improved the cleaning and lighting of streets. He developed journalism established the American Philosophical Society, the Public Library in Philadelphia, and the University of Pennsylvania. He organized a postal system for the colonies, which was the basis of the present United States Post Office. Bancroft, the eminent historian, called him the greatest diplomat of his century. He perfected the Albany Plan of Union for the colonies. He is the only statesman who signed the Declaration of Independence, the Treaty of Alliance with France, the Treaty of Peace with England, and the Constitution. As a writer, he has produced, in his autobiography and in Poor Richard's Almanac, two works that are not surpassed by similar writing. He received honorary degrees from Harvard and Yale, from Oxford and St. Andrews, and was made a Fellow of the Royal Society, which awarded him the Copley Gold Medal for improving natural knowledge. He was one of the eight foreign associates of the French Academy of Science. The careful study of the autobiography is also valuable because of the style in which it is written. 
if Robert Louis Stevenson is right in believing that his remarkable style was acquired by imitation, then the youth who would gain the power to express his ideas clearly, forcibly, and interestingly cannot do better than to study Franklin's method. Franklin's fame in the scientific world was due almost as much to his modest, simple, and sincere manner of presenting his discoveries, and to the precision and clearness of the style in which he described his experiments, as to the results he was able to announce. Sir David Humphrey, the celebrated English chemist, himself an excellent literary critic, as well as a great scientist, said, a singular Felicity guided all Franklin's researches, and by very small means he established very grand truths. The style and manner of his publication on electricity are almost as worthy of admiration as the doctrine it contains. Franklin's place in literature is hard to determine because he was not primarily a literary man. His aim in his writings, as in his life work, was to be helpful to his fellow men. For him writing was never an end in itself, but always means to an end. Yet his success as a scientist, a statesman, and a diplomat, as well as socially, was in no little part due to his ability as a writer. His letters charmed all and made his correspondence eagerly sought. His political arguments were the joy of his party and the dread of his opponents. His scientific discoveries were explained in language at once so simple and so clear that ploughboy and exquisite could follow his thought or his experiment to its conclusion. As far as American literature is concerned, Franklin has no contemporaries. Before the autobiography, only one literary work of importance had been produced in this country, Cotton Mather's Magnalia, a church history of New England, in a ponderous, stiff style. Franklin was the first American author to gain wide and permanent reputation in Europe. The autobiography, Poor Richard, Father Abraham's Speech, or The Way to Wealth, as well as some of the bagatelles, are as widely known abroad as any American writings. Franklin must also be classed as the first American humorist. English literature of the 18th century was characterized by the development of prose. Periodical literature reached its perfection early in the century in The Tatler and The Spectator of Addison and Steele. Pamphleteers flourished throughout the period. The homelier prose of Bunyan and Defoe gradually gave place to the more elegant and artificial language of Samuel Johnson, who set the standard for prose writing from 1745 onward. This century saw the beginnings of the modern novel in Fielding's Tom Jones, Richardson's Clarissa Harlow, Stern's Tristram Shanty, and Goldsmith's Vicar of Wakefield. Gibbon wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Hume his History of England, and Adam Smith The Wealth of Nations. In the simplicity and vigor of his style, Franklin more nearly resembles the earlier group of writers. In his first essay, he was not an inferior imitator of Addison. In his numerous parables, moral allegories, and apologies, he showed Bunyan's influence. But Franklin was essentially a journalist. In his swift, terse style, he is most like Defoe, who was the first great English journalist and master of the newspaper narrative. The style of both writers is marked by homely, vigorous expression, satire, burlesque, repartee. Here the comparison must end. 
Defoe and his contemporaries were authors, their vocation was writing, and their success rests on the imaginative or creative powers they displayed. To authorship Franklin laid no claim. He wrote no work of the imagination. He developed only incidentally a style in many respects as remarkable as that of his English contemporaries. He wrote the best autobiography in existence, one of the most widely known collections of maxims, and an unsurpassed series of political and social satires. Because he was a man of unusual scope of power and usefulness, who knew how to tell his fellow men the secrets of that power and usefulness. THE STORY OF THE AUTOBIOGRAPHY The account of how Franklin's autobiography came to be written, and the adventures of the original manuscript, forms in itself an interesting story. The autobiography is Franklin's longest work, and yet it is only a fragment. The first part, written as a letter to his son, William Franklin, was not intended for publication, and the composition is more informal and the narrative more personal than in the second part. From 1730 on, which was written with a view to publication, the entire manuscript shows little evidence of revision. In fact, the expression is so homely and natural that his grandson, William Temple Franklin, in editing the work, changed some of the phrases because he thought them inelegant and vulgar. Franklin began the story of his life while on a visit to his friend, Bishop Shipley, at Twyford in Hampshire, southern England, in 1771. He took the manuscript, completed to 1731, with him when he returned to Philadelphia in 1775. It was left there with his other papers when he went to France in the following year, and disappeared during the confusion incident to the Revolution. Twenty-three pages of closely written manuscript fell into the hands of Abel James, an old friend who sent a copy to Franklin at Passé, near Paris, urging him to complete the story. Franklin took up the work at Passé in 1784 and carried the narrative forward a few months. He changed the plan to meet his new purpose of writing to benefit the younger reader. His work was soon interrupted and was not resumed until 1788, when he was at home in Philadelphia. He was now old, infirm, and suffering, and was still engaged in public service. Under these discouraging conditions, the work progressed slowly. It finally stopped when the narrative reached the year 1757. Copies of the manuscript were sent to friends of Franklin in England and France, among others to Monsieur Le Villard at Paris. The first edition of the autobiography was published in French at Paris in 1791. It was clumsily and carelessly translated, and was imperfect and unfinished. Where the translator got the manuscript is not known. Le Villard disclaimed any knowledge of the publication from this faulty French edition. Many others were printed, some in Germany, two in England, and another in France. So great was the demand for the work. In the meantime, the original manuscript of the autobiography had started on a varied and adventurous career. It was left by Franklin with his other works to his grandson, William Temple Franklin, whom Franklin designated as his literary executioner. When Temple Franklin came to publish his grandfather's works in 1817, he sent the original manuscript of the autobiography to the daughter of Leveillon in exchange for her father's copy, probably thinking the clearer transcript would make better printer's copy. The original manuscript thus found its way to the Leveillon family and connections where it remained until sold in 1867 to Mr. John 
Bigelow, United States Minister to France. By him it was later sold to Mr. E. Dwight Church of New York, and passed, with the rest of Mr. Church's library, into the possession of Mr. Henry E. Huntington. The original manuscript of Franklin's autobiography now rests in the vault in Mr. Huntington's residence at 5th Avenue and 57th Street, New York City. When Mr. Bigelow came to examine his purchase, he was astonished to find what people had been reading for years as the authentic life of Benjamin Franklin by himself was only a garbled and incomplete version of the real autobiography. Temple Franklin had taken unwarranted liberties with the original. Mr. Bigelow says he found more than 1,200 changes in the text. In 1868, therefore, Mr. Bigelow published the standard edition of Franklin's autobiography. It corrected errors in the previous editions, and was the first English edition to contain the short fourth part, comprising the last few pages of the manuscript, written during the last year of Franklin's life. Mr. Bigelow republished the autobiography, with additional interesting matter, in three volumes in 1875, in 1905, and in 1910. The text in this volume is that of Mr. Bigelow's editions. For the divisions into chapters and the chapter titles, however, the present editor is responsible. The autobiography has been reprinted in the United States many scores of times and translated into all the languages of Europe. It has never lost its popularity and is still in constant demand at circulating libraries. The reason for this popularity is not far to seek, for in this work Franklin told in a remarkable manner the story of a remarkable life. He displayed hard common sense and a practical knowledge of the art of living. He selected and arranged his material, perhaps unconsciously, with an unerring instinct of the journalist for the best effects. His success is not a little due to his plain, clear, vigorous English. He used short sentences and words, homely expressions, apt illustrations, and pointed allusions. Franklin had a most interesting, varied, and unusual life. He was one of the greatest conversationalists of his time. His book is the record of that unusual life told in Franklin's own unexcelled conversational style. It is said that the best parts of Boswell's famous biography of Samuel Johnson are those parts where Boswell permits Johnson to tell his own story. In the autobiography, a no less remarkable man and talker than Samuel Johnson is telling his own story throughout. FWP, The Gilman Country School, Baltimore, September 1916. End of Introduction The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, Chapter 1 Ancestry and Early Youth in Boston Twyford at the Bishop of St. Asaph's, 1771 Begin footnote. Twyford is a small village not far from Winchester in Hampshire, southern England. There was the county seat of the Bishop of St. Asaph, Dr. Jonathan Shipley, the good bishop as Dr. Franklin used to style him. Their relations were intimate and confidential. In his pulpit, and in the House of Lords as well as in society, the bishop always opposed the harsh measures of the crown towards the colonies. End footnote. Dear son, I have ever had pleasure in obtaining any little anecdotes 
of my ancestors. You may remember the inquiries I made among the remains of my relations when you were with me in England, and the journey I undertook for that purpose. Imagining it may be equally agreeable to you to know the circumstances of my life, many of which you are yet unacquainted with, and expecting the enjoyment of a week's uninterrupted leisure in my present country retirement, I sit down to write them to you, for which I have besides some other inducements. Having emerged from the poverty and obscurity in which I was born and bred to a state of affluence and some degree of reputation in the world, and having gone so far through life with a considerable share of felicity, the conducting means I made use of, which with the blessing of God so well succeeded, my posterity may like to know, as they may find some of them suitable for their own situations, and therefore fit to be imitated. That felicity, when I reflect on it, has induced me sometimes to say, that were it offered to my choice, I would have no objection to a repetition of the same life from its beginning, only asking the advantages authors have in second edition to correct some faults of the first. So I might, besides correcting the faults, change some sinister accidents and events of it for others more favorable. But though this were denied, I should still accept the offer. Since such a reputation is not to be expected, the next thing most like living one's life over again seems to be a recollection of that life, and to make that recollection as durable as possible by putting it down in writing. Hereby, too, I shall indulge the inclination so natural in old men to be talking of themselves and their own past actions, and I shall indulge it without being tiresome to others, who, through respect to age, might conceive themselves obliged to give me a hearing, since this may be read or not as any one pleases. And lastly, I may as well confess it, since my denial of it will be believed by nobody, perhaps I shall a good deal gratify my own vanity. Begin footnote. In this connection, Woodrow Wilson says, and yet the surprising and delightful thing about this book is that, take it all in all, it has not the low tone of conceit, but is a staunch man's sober and unaffected assessment of himself and the circumstances of his career. Gibbon and Hume, the great British historians, who were contemporaries of Franklin, express in their autobiographies the same feeling about the propriety of just self-praise. End footnote. Indeed, I scarce ever heard or saw the introductory words, without vanity I may say, etc., with some vain thing immediately following. Most people dislike vanity in others, whatever share they have of it themselves, but I give it fair quarter whenever I meet with it, being persuaded that it is often productive to the good possessor, and to others that are within his sphere of action, and therefore, in many cases, it would not be altogether absurd if a man were to thank God for his vanity among the other comforts of life. And now I speak of thanking God, I desire with all humility to acknowledge that I owe the mentioned happiness of my past life to his kind providence which led me to the means I used and gave them success. My belief of this induces me to hope, though I must not presume, that the same goodness will still be exercised toward me in continuing that happiness, 
or enabling me to bear a fatal reverse, which I may experience as others have done, the complexion of my future fortune being known to him only in whose power it is to bless to us even our afflictions. The notes one of my uncles, who had the same kind of curiosity in collecting family anecdotes, once put into my hands, furnished me with several particulars relating to our ancestors. From these notes I learned that the family had lived in the same village, Ecton, in Northamptonshire, for three hundred years, and how much longer he knew not, perhaps from the time when the name of Franklin, that before was the name of an order of people, begin footnote, a small landowner, end footnote, was assumed by then as a surname when others took surnames all over the kingdom. On a freehold of about thirty acres, aided by the smith's business, which had continued in the family till his time, the eldest son being always bred to that business, a custom which he and my father followed as to their eldest sons. When I searched the registers at Ecton, I found an account of their births, marriages, and burials from the year 1555 only, and there being no registers kept in that parish at any time preceding. By that register I perceived that I was the youngest son of the youngest son for five generations back. My grandfather Thomas, who was born in 1598, lived in Ecton until he grew too old to follow business longer, when he went to live with his son John, a dyer at Branbury in Oxfordshire, and whom my father served as an apprentice. There my grandfather died and lies buried. We saw his gravestone in 1758. His eldest son, Thomas, lived in the house at Ecton, and left it, with the land, to his only child, a daughter, who, with her husband, one Fisher, of Wellingborough, sold it to Mr. Isted, now lord of the manor there. My grandfather had four sons that grew up, viz. Thomas, John, Benjamin, and Josiah. I will give you what account I can of them, at this distance from my papers, and if these are not lost in my absence, you will among them find many more particulars. Thomas was bred a smith under his father, but, being ingenious and encouraged in learning, as all my brothers were, by an Esquire Palmer, then the principal gentleman in that parish, he qualified himself for the business of Scrivener, became a considerable man in the county, was a chief mover of all public-spirited undertakings for the county, or town of Northampton, and his own village, of which many instances are related of him, and which taken notice of and patronized by the then Lord Halifax. He died in 1702, January 6th, Old Style, just four years to the day before I was born. Begin footnote. January 17th, New Style. This change in the calendar was made in 1582 by Pope Gregory the Thirteenth and adopted in England in 1752. Every year whose number in the common reckoning since Christ is not divisible by four, as well as every year whose number is divisible by one hundred, but not by four, shall have three hundred and sixty-five days, and all other years shall have three hundred and sixty-six days. In the eighteenth century there was a difference of eleven days between the old and new style of reckoning, 
which the English Parliament cancelled by making the 3rd of September, 1752, the 14th. The Julian calendar, or old style, is still retained in Russia and Greece, whose dates consequently are now 13 days behind those of other Christian countries. End footnote. The account we received of his life and character from some old people at Ecton, I remember, struck you as something extraordinary, from its similarity to what you knew of mine. Had he died on the same day, you said, one might have supposed a transmigration. John was bred a dyer, I believe of woolens. Benjamin was bred a silk dyer, serving an apprenticeship at London. He was an ingenious man, I remember him well for when I was a boy he came over to my father in Boston, and lived in the house with us some years. He lived to a great age. His grandson, Samuel Franklin, now lives in Boston. He left behind him two quattro volumes, manuscripts, of his own poetry, consisting of little occasional pieces addressed to his friends and relations, of which the following sent me is a specimen. He had formed a shorthand of his own, which he taught me, but never practised. I have now forgot it. I was named after this uncle, there being a particular affection between him and my father. He was very pious, a great attendee of sermons of the best preachers, which he took down in his shorthand, and had with him many volumes of them. He was also much of a politician, too much perhaps for his station. There fell lately into my hands, in London, a collection he made of all the principal pamphlets relating to public affairs from 1641 to 1717. Many of the volumes are wanting as appears by the numbering, but there still remain eight volumes in folio, and twenty-four in quattro, and in octavo. A dealer in old books met with them, and knowing me by my sometimes buying of him, he brought them to me. It seems my uncle must have left them here when he went to America, which was about fifty years since. There are many of his notes in the margins. The obscure family of ours was early in the Reformation, and continued Protestants through the reign of Queen Mary, when they were sometimes in danger of trouble on account of their zeal against popery. They had got an English Bible, and to conceal and secure it, it was fastened open with tapes under and within the cover of a joint-stool. When my great-great-grandfather read it to his family, he turned up the joint-stool upon his knees, turning over the leaves, then under the tapes. One of the children stood at the door to give notice if he saw the apparitor coming, who was an officer of the spiritual court. In that case, the stool was turned down again upon its feet, when the Bible remained concealed under it as before. This anecdote I had from my uncle Benjamin. The family continued all of the Church of England till about the end of Charles II's reign, when some of the ministers had been outed for nonconformity, holding conventicles in North Hampshire, Benjamin, and Joshua adhered to them, and so continued all their lives. The rest of the family remained with the Episcopal Church. Conventicles were secret gatherings of dissenters from the established church. Joshua, my father, married young, and carried his wife and three children into England about 1682. 
the conventicles having been forbidden by law and frequently disturbed induced some considerable men of his acquaintance to remove to that country and he was prevailed with them to accompany them thither where they expected to enjoy their mode of religion with freedom by the same wife he had four children more born there and by a second wife ten more in all seventeen of which i remember thirteen sitting at one time at his table who all grew up to be men and women and married i was the youngest son and the youngest child but two and was born in boston new england my mother the second wife was abbeth folger daughter of peter folger one of the first settlers of new england of whom honourable mention is made by cotton mather in his church history of that country entitled magnalia christi americana as a godly learned englishman if i remember the words rightly i have heard that he wrote sundry small occasional pieces but only one of them was printed which i saw now many years since it was written in sixteen seventy five in the homespun verse of that time and people and addressed to those then concerned in the government there it was in favour of liberty of conscience and in behalf of the baptists quakers and other sectaries that had been under persecution ascribing the indian wars and other distresses that had befallen the country to that persecution as so many judgments of god to punish so heinous an offence and exhorting a repeal of those uncharitable laws the whole appeared to me as written with a good deal of decent plainness and manly freedom the six concluding lines i remember though i have forgotten the two first of the stanza but the purport of them was that his censures proceeded from goodwill and therefore he would be known to be the author because to be a libeller says he i hate it with my heart from sherburn town where now i dwell my name i do put here without offence your real friend it is peter folger franklin was born on sunday january sixth old style seventeen o six in a house on milk street opposite the old south meeting-house where he was baptized on the day of his birth during a snowstorm the house where he was born was burned in eighteen ten cotton mather sixteen sixty three to seventeen twenty eight clergyman author and scholar pastor of the north church boston he took an active part in the persecution of witchcraft my elder brothers were all apprentices to different trades i was put to the grammar school at eight years of age my father intending to devote me as the tithe of his sons to the service of the church my early readiness in learning to read which must have been very early as i do not remember when i could not read and the opinion of all his friends that i should certainly make a good scholar encouraged him in this purpose of his my uncle benjamin too approved of it and proposed to give me all his shorthand volumes of sermons i suppose a stock to be set up with if i would learn his character i continued however at the grammar school not quite one year though in that time i had risen gradually from the middle of the class of that year to be the head of it and farther was removed to the next class above it in order to go with that into the third at the end of the year but my father in the meantime from a view of the expense of a college education 
which having so large a family he could not well afford, and the mean living many so educated were afterwards able to obtain, reasons that he gave to his friends in my hearing, altered his first intention, took me from the grammar school, and sent me to a school for writing and arithmetic, kept by a then famous man, Mr. George Browell, very successful in his profession generally, and by mild, encouraging methods, under him I acquired fair writing pretty soon, but I failed in the arithmetic, and made no progress in it. At ten years old I was taken home to assist my father in his business, which was that of a tallow chandler and soap boiler, a business he had not bred to, but had assumed on his arrival in New England, and on finding his dying trade would not maintain his family, being in little request. Accordingly, I was employed in cutting wick for the candles, filling the dipping mould, and the moulds for cast candles, attending the shop, going of errands, etc. I disliked the trade, and had a strong inclination for the sea, but my father declared against it. However, living near the water, I was much in and about it, learned early to swim well, and to manage boats, and, when in a boat or canoe with other boys, I was commonly allowed to govern, especially in any case of difficulty, and upon other occasions I was generally a leader among the boys, and sometimes led them into scrapes, of which I will mention one instance, as it shows an early projecting public spirit, though not then justly conducted. There was a salt marsh that bounded part of the mill-pond, on the edge of which, at high water, we used to stand to fish for minnows. By much tramping we had made it a mere quagmire. My proposal was to build a wharf there fit for us to stand upon, and I showed my comrades a large heap of stones, which were intended for a new house near the marsh, and which would very well suit our purpose. Accordingly, in the evening, when the workmen were gone, I assembled a number of my playfellows, and working with them diligently, like so many emmets, sometimes two or three to a stone, we brought them all away and built our little wharf. The next morning the workmen were surprised at missing the stones, which were found in our wharf. Inquiry was made after the removers. We were discovered and complained of. Several of us were corrected by our fathers, and, though I pleaded the usefulness of the work, mine convinced me that nothing was useful which was not honest. I think you may like to know something of his person and character. He had an excellent constitution of body, was of middle stature, but well set, and very strong. He was ingenious, could draw prettily, was skilled a little in music, and had a clear, pleasing voice, so that when he played psalm tunes on his violin, and sung withal, as he sometimes did in an evening after the business of the day was over, it was extremely agreeable to hear. He had a mechanical genius, too, and on occasion was very handy in the use of other tradesmen's tools, but his great excellence lay in a sound understanding and solid judgment in prudent matters, both in private and public affairs. In the latter, indeed, he was never employed. The numerous family he had to educate, and the straitness of his circumstances, kept him close to the, his trade. But I remember well his being frequently visited by leading people, who consulted him for his opinion in affairs of the town, or of the church he belonged to and showed a good deal of respect for his judgment and advice. 
He was also much consulted by private persons about their affairs when any difficulty occurred, and frequently chosen an arbiter between contending parties. At his table he liked to have, as often as he could, some sensible friend or neighbor to converse with, and always took care to start some ingenious or useful topic for discourse, which might tend to improve the minds of his children. By this means he turned our attention to what was good, just, and prudent in the conduct of life, and little or no notice was ever taken of what related to the victuals on the table, whether it was well or ill-dressed, in or out of season, of good or bad flavor, preferable or inferior to this or that other thing of the kind. So that was how I was brought up in such a perfect inattention to those matters as to be quite indifferent what kind of food was set before me, and so unobservant of it that to this day, if I am asked, I can scarce tell a few hours after dinner what I dined upon. This has been a convenience to me in travelling, where my companions have been sometimes very unhappy for want of a suitable gratification of their more delicate, because better instructed, tastes and appetites. My mother had likewise an excellent constitution. She suckled all her ten children. I never knew whether my father or mother to have any sickness but that of which they died, he at eighty-nine, and she at eighty-five years of age. They lie buried together at Boston. I, some years since, placed a marble over their grave with this inscription, Josiah Franklin and Abbeth his wife, lie here in turn. They lived lovingly together in wedlock fifty-five years, without an estate or any gainful employment, by constant labor and industry, with God's blessing, they maintained a large family comfortably, and brought up thirteen children and seven grandchildren reputably. From this instance, reader, be encouraged to diligence in thy calling, and distrust not providence. He was a pious and prudent man, she a discreet and virtuous woman. Their youngest son, in fifeful regard to their memory, places this stone. J. F., born 1655, died 1744, at 89. A. F., born 1667, died 1752, 85. This marble having decayed, the citizens of Boston in 1827 erected in its place a granite obelisk, 21 feet high, bearing the original inscription quoted in the text, and another explaining the erection of the monument. By my rambling digressions I perceive myself to be grown old. I used to write more methodically, but one does not dress for private company as for a public ball. Tis perhaps only negligence. To return, I continued thus employed in my father's business for two years, that is, till I was twelve years old, and my brother John, who was bred to that business, having left my father, married and set up for himself at Rhode Island there was all appearance that I was destined to supply his place and become a tallow-chandler. But my dislike to the trade continuing, my father was under apprehensions that if he did not find one for me more agreeable, I should break away and go to sea, as his son Joshua had done, to his great vexation. He therefore sometimes took me to walk with him and see joiners, bricklayers, turners, 
braziers, etc., at their work, that he might observe my inclination and endeavour to fix it on some trade or other, on land. It has ever since been a pleasure to me to see good workmen handle their tools, and it has been useful to me, having learnt so much by it, as to be able to do little jobs myself in my house, when a workman could not readily be got, and to construct little machines for my experiments, while the intention of making the experiment was fresh and warm in my mind. My father at last fixed upon the cutler's trade, and my uncle Benjamin's son Samuel, who was bred to that business in London, being about that time established in Boston, I was sent to be with him some time on liking. But his expectations of a fee with me displeased my father. I was taken home again. End of chapter 1 The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin Chapter 2 Beginning Life as a Printer From a child I was fond of reading, and all the little money that came into my hands was ever laid out in books. Pleased with the Pilgrim's Progress, my first collection was of John Bunyan's works in separate little volumes. I afterwards sold them to enable me to buy R. Burton's historical collections. They were small Chapman's books, and cheap forty or fifty in all. My father's little library consisted chiefly of books in polemic divinity, most of which I read, and have since often regretted that, at a time when I had such a thirst for knowledge, more proper books had not fallen in my way, since it was now resolved I should not be a clergyman. Plutarch's Lives there was in which I read abundantly, and I still think that time spent to great advantage. There was also a book of Defoe's called An Essay on Projects, and another of Dr. Mather's called Essays to Do Good, which perhaps gave me a turn of thinking that had an influence on some of the principal future events of my life. This bookish inclination at length determined my father to make me a printer, though he had already one son, James, of that profession. In 1717 my brother James returned from England with a press and letters to set up his business in Boston. I liked it much better than that of my father, but still had a hankering for the sea. To prevent the apprehended effect of such an inclination, my father was impatient to have me bound to my brother. I stood out some time, but at last was persuaded, and signed the indentures when I was yet but twelve years old. I was to serve as an apprentice till I was twenty-one years of age, only I was to be allowed journeyman's wages during the last year. In a little time I made great proficiency in the business, and became a useful hand to my brother. I now had access to better books, and acquaintance with the apprentice of booksellers enabled me sometimes to borrow a small one, which I was careful to return soon and clean. Often I sat up in my room reading the greatest part of the night. When the book was borrowed in the evening, and to be returned early in the morning, lest it should be missed or wanted. After some time an ingenious tradesman, Mr. Matthew Adams, who had a pretty collection of books, and who frequented our printing-house, took notice of me, invited me to his library, and very kindly lent me such books as I chose to read. I now took a fancy to poetry and made some little pieces, my brother, thinking it might turn to account, encouraged me, and put me on composing occasional ballads. 
One was called The Lighthouse Tragedy, and contained an account of the drowning of Captain Worthilake with his two daughters. The other was a sailor's song on the taking of Teach, or Blackbeard, the pirate. They were wretched stuff in the Grub Street ballad style, and when they were printed he sent me out to the town to sell them. The first sold wonderfully, the event being recent, having made a great noise. This flattered my vanity, but my father discouraged me by ridiculing my performances, and telling me verse-makers were generally beggars. So I escaped being a poet, most probably a very bad one, but as prose-writing had been of great use to me in the course of my life, and was a principal means of my advancement, I shall now tell you how in such a situation I acquired what little ability I have in that way. There was another bookish lad in the town, John Collins by name, with whom I was intimately acquainted. We sometimes disputed, and very fond we were of argument, and very desirous of confuting one another, with disputatious turn, by the way, is apt to become a very bad habit making people often extremely disagreeable in company, by the contradiction that is necessary to bring it into practice, and thence, besides souring and spoiling the conversation, is productive of disgusts and, perhaps, enmities where you may have occasion for friendship. I had caught it by reading my father's books of dispute about religion. Persons of good sense, I have since observed, seldom fall into it, except lawyers, university men, and men of all sorts that have been bred at Edinburgh. A question was once, somehow or other, started between Collins and me, of the propriety of educating the female sex in learning, and their abilities for study. He was of the opinion that it was improper, and that they were naturally unequal to it. I took the contrary side perhaps a little for the dispute's sake. He was naturally more eloquent, and had already plenty of words, and sometimes, as I thought, bore me down more by his fluency than by the strength of his reasons. As we parted without settling the point, and were not to see one another again for some time, I sat down to put my arguments in writing, which I copied fair and sent to him. He answered, and I replied, Three or four letters of a side had passed when my father happened to find my papers and read them. Without entering into the discussion, he took occasion to talk to me about the manner of my writing, observed that, though I had the advantage of my antagonist in correct spelling and pointing, which I owed to the printing-house, I fell far short in elegance of expression, in method, and in persecuity, of which he convinced me by several instances. I saw the justice of his remarks, and hence grew more attentive to the manner in writing, and determined to endeavour at improvement. About this time I met with an odd volume of The Spectator. It was the third I had never before seen any of them. I bought it, read it over and over, and was much delighted with it. I thought the writing excellent, and wished, if possible, to imitate it. With this view I took some of the papers, and making short hints of the sentiment in each sentence, laid them by a few days, and then, without looking at the book, tried to complete the papers again, by expressing each hinted sentiment at length, and as fully as it had been expressed before, in any subtle words which should come to hand. Then I compared my spectator with the original, discovered some of my faults, and corrected them 
but I found I wanted a stock of words, or a readiness in recollecting and using them, which I thought I should have acquired before that time if I had gone on making verses, since the continual occasion for words of the same import, but of different length, to suit the measure, or of different sound for the rhyme, would have laid me under a constant necessity of searching for variety, and also have tended to fix that variety in my mind, and make me master of it. Therefore I took some of the tales and turned them into verse, and after a time, when I had pretty well forgotten the prose, turned them back again. I also sometimes jumbled my collections of hints into confusion, and after some weeks endeavored to reduce them into the best order before I began to form the full sentences and complete the paper. This was to teach me method in the arrangement of thoughts. By comparing my work afterwards with the original, I discovered many faults and amended them. But I sometimes had the pleasure of fancying that, in certain particulars of small import, I had been lucky enough to improve the method of the language, and this encouraged me to think I might possibly in time come to be a tolerable English writer of which I was extremely ambitious. My time for these exercises and for reading was at night, after work, or before it began, in the morning. Or on Sundays, when I contrived to be in the printing-house alone, evading as much as I could the common attendance on pulpit worship, which my father used to extract of me when I was under his care, and which indeed I still thought a duty though I could not, as it seemed to me, afford time to practice it. A daily London journal comprising satirical essays on social subjects, published by Addison and Steele in 1711 and 1712, The Spectator, and its predecessor, The Tattler, 1709, marked the beginning of periodical literature. When about sixteen years of age, I happened to meet with a book written by one Tryon, recommending a vegetable diet. I determined to go into it. My brother, being yet unmarried, did not keep house, but boarded himself and his apprentices in another family. My refusing to eat flesh occasioned an inconveniency, and I was frequently chided for my singularity. I made myself acquainted with Tyrone's manner of preparing some of his dishes, such as boiling potatoes or rice, making hasty pudding, and a few others, and then proposed to my brother that if he would give me weekly half the money he paid for my board, I would board myself. He instantly agreed to it, and I presently found that I could save half of what he paid me. This was an additional fund for buying books, but I had another advantage in it, my brother and the rest going from the printing-house to their meals, I remained there alone and, dispatching presently my light repast, which often was no more than a biscuit or a slice of bread, a handful of raisins, or a tart from the pastry-cooks, and a glass of water, had the rest of the time till their return for study, in which I made the greatest progress, for that greater clearness of head and quicker apprehension which usually attended temperance in eating and drinking. And now it was being on some occasion made ashamed of my ignorance in figures, which I had twice failed in learning when at school, I took Crocker's book of arithmetic, and went through the whole by myself with great ease. I also read Seller and Shemmy's 
book of navigation, and became acquainted with the little geometry they contained, but never proceeded farther in that science. And I read about this time Locke on Human Understanding and the Art of Thinking by Monsieur Dupont Royal. John Locke, 1632-1704, to 1704, a celebrated English philosopher, founder of the so-called common-sense school of philosophers, he drew up a constitution for the colonists of Carolina. A noted society of scholarly and devout men occupying the abbey of Port Royal near Paris, who published learned books among the one here referred to, better known as the Port Royal Logic. While I was intended on improving my language, I met with an English grammar, I think it was Greenwood's, at the end of which there were two little sketches of the arts of rhetoric and logic, the latter finishing with a specimen of a dispute with the Socratic method, and soon after I procured Xenophon's memorable things of Socrates, wherein there are many instances of the same method. I was charmed with it, adopted it, dropped my abrupt contradiction and positive argumentation, and put on the humble inquirer and doubter, and being then, from reading Shaftesbury and Collins, become a real doubter in many points of our religious doctrine. I found this method safest for myself, and very embarrassing to those against whom I used it. Therefore I took a delight in it, practiced it continually, and grew very artful and expert in drawing people, even of superior knowledge, into concessions, the consequence of which they did not foresee, entangling them in difficulties out of which they could not extricate themselves, and so obtaining victories that neither myself nor my cause always deserved. I continued this method some few years, but gradually left it, retaining only the habit of expressing myself in terms of modest diffidence, never using, when I advanced anything that may possibly be disputed, the words certainly, undoubtedly, or any others that gave an air of positiveness to an opinion, but rather say, I conceive or apprehend a thing to be so and so it appears to me, or I should think it so or so, for such and such reasons, or I imagine it to be so, or it is so, if I am not mistaken. This habit, I believe, has been of great advantage to me when I have had occasion to inculcate my opinions and persuade men into measures that I have been from time to time engaged in promoting and as the chief ends of conversation are to inform or to be informed to please or to persuade i wish well-meaning sensible men would not lessen their power of doing good by a positive assuming manner that seldom fails to disgust tends to create opposition and to defeat every one of those purposes for which speech was given to us to wit giving or receiving information or pleasure for if you would inform a positive and dogmatical manner, in advancing your sentiments may provoke contradiction and prevent a candid attention. If you wish information and improvement from the knowledge of others, and yet at the same time express yourself as firmly fixed in your present opinion, modest, sensible men, who do not love disputation, will probably leave you undisturbed in the possession of your error. And by such a manner, you can seldom hope to recommend yourself in pleasing. Pope says, judiciously, Men should be taught as if you taught them not, and things unknown prospered as things forgot, further recommending to us, 
to speak though sure with seeming diffidence and he might have coupled with this line that which he has coupled with another i think less properly for want of modesty is want of sense if you ask why less properly i must repeat the lines immodest words admit of no defence for want of modesty is want of sense now is not want of sense wherein a man is so unfortunate as to want it some apology for his want of modesty and would not the lines stand more justly thus immodest words admit but this defence the want of modesty is want of sense this however i submit to better judgments socrates confuted his opponents in an argument by asking questions so skilfully devised that the answers would confirm the questioner's position or show the error of the opponent alexander pope sixteen eighty eight to seventeen forty four the greatest english poet of the first half of the eighteenth century my brother had in seventeen twenty or seventeen twenty one begun to print a newspaper it was the second that appeared in america and was called the new england Courant. the only one before it was the boston news letter i remember his being dissuaded by some of his friends from the undertaking as not likely to succeed one newspaper being in their judgment enough for america at this time seventeen seventy one there were not less than five and twenty he went on however with the undertaking and after having worked in composing the types and printing off the sheets i was employed to carry the papers through the streets to the customers franklin's memory does not serve him correctly here the corrent was really the fifth newspaper established in america although generally called the fourth because the first public occurrences published in boston in sixteen ninety was suppressed after the first issue following is the order in which the other four papers were published boston news letter seventeen o four boston gazette december twenty first seventeen nineteen the american weekly mercury philadelphia december twenty second seventeen nineteen the new england Courant, seventeen twenty one he had some ingenious men among his friends who amused themselves by writing little pieces for this paper which gained it credit and made it more in demand and these gentlemen often visited us hearing their conversations and their account of the approbation their papers were received with i was excited to try my hand among them but being still a boy and suspecting that my brother would object to printing anything of mine in his paper if he knew it to be mine i contrived to disguise my hand and writing an anonymous paper i put it in at night under the door of the printing-house it was found in the morning and communicated to his writing friends when they called in as usual they read it commented on it in my hearing and i had the exquisite pleasure of finding it met with their approbation and that their different guesses at the author none were named but men of some character among us for learning and ingenuity i suppose now that i was rather lucky in my judges and that perhaps they were not really so very good ones as i then esteemed them encouraged however by this i wrote and conveyed in the same way to the press several more papers which were equally approved and i kept my secret till my small fund of sense for such performances was pretty well exhausted and then i discovered it when i began to be considered a little more by my brother's acquaintances and in a manner that did not quite please him as he thought probably with reason that it tended to make me too vain and perhaps this might be one occasion of the differences that we began to have about this time 
though a brother he considered himself as my master and me as his apprentice and accordingly expected the same services from me as he would from another while i thought he deemed me too much in some he required of me who from a brother expected more indulgence our disputes were often brought before our father and i fancy i was either generally in the right or else a better pleader because the judgment was generally in my favour but my brother was passionate and had often beaten me which i took extremely amiss and thinking my apprenticeship very tedious i was continually wishing for some opportunity of shortening it which at length offered in a manner unexpected one of the pieces in our newspaper on some political point which i have now forgotten gave offence to the assembly he was taken up censured and imprisoned for a month by the speaker's warrant i suppose because he would not discover his author i too was taken up and examined before the council but though i did not give them any satisfaction they contented themselves with admonishing me and dismissed me considering age perhaps as an apprentice who was bound to keep his master's secrets during my brother's confinement which i resented a good deal notwithstanding our private differences i had the management of the paper and i made bold to give our rulers some rubs in it which my brother took very kindly while others began to consider me in an unfavourable light as a young genius that had a turn for libelling and satire my brother's discharge was accompanied with an order of the house a very odd one that james franklin could no longer print the paper called the new england Courant. there was a consultation held in our printing-house among his friends what should be done in this case some proposed to evade the order by changing the name of the paper but my brother seeing inconveniences in that it was finally concluded on as a better way to let it be printed for the future under the name of benjamin franklin and to avoid the censure of the assembly that might fall on him as still printing it by his apprentice the contrivance was that my old indenture should be returned to me with a full discharge on the back of it to be shown on occasion but to secure to him the benefits of my service, I was to sign new indentures for the remainder of the term, which were to be kept private. A very flimsy scheme it was, however. It was immediately executed, and the paper went on accordingly, under my name, for several months. At length, a fresh difference arising between my brother and me, I took upon me to assert my freedom, presuming that he would not venture to produce the new indentures, it was not fair in me to take this advantage, and this I therefore reckoned one of the first errata of my life. But the unfairness of it weighed little with me, when under the impressions of resentment for the blows his passion too often urged him to bestow upon me, though he was otherwise not an ill-natured man, perhaps I was too saucy and provoking. When he found I would leave him, he took care to prevent my getting employment in any other printing-house of the town, by going round and speaking to every master, who accordingly refused to give me work. I then thought of going to New York, as the nearest place where there was a printer, and I was rather inclined to leave Boston, when I reflected that I had already made myself a little obnoxious to the governing party, and from the arbitrary proceedings of the assembly, in my brother's case, it was likely I might, if I stayed, soon bring myself into scrapes. 
and farther that my indiscreet disputations about religion began to make me pointed at with horror by good people as an infidel or atheist i determined on the point but my father now siding with my brother i was sensible that if i attempted to go openly means would be used to prevent me my friend collins therefore undertook to manage a little for me he agreed with the captain of a new york sloop for my passage under the notion of my being a young acquaintance of his so i sold some of my books to raise a little money was taken on board privately and as we had a fair wind in three days i found myself in new york near three hundred miles from home a boy of but seventeen without the least recommendation to or knowledge of any person in the place and with very little money in my pocket end of chapter two the Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, Chapter 3 Arrival in Philadelphia My inclinations for the sea were by this time worn out, or I might now have gratified them. But having a trade, and supposing myself a pretty good workman, I offered my service to the printer in the place, old Mr. William Bradford, who had been the first printer in Pennsylvania, but removed from thence upon the quarrel of George Keith, he could give me no employment, having little to do, and help enough already, but says he, My son at Philadelphia has lately lost his principal hand, Aquila Rose, by death. If you go thither, I believe he may employ you. Philadelphia was a hundred miles further. I set out, however, in a boat for Amboy, leaving my chest and things to follow me round by sea. In crossing the bay, we met with a squall that tore our rotten sails to pieces, preventing our getting into the kill, and drove us upon Long Island. In our way, a drunken Dutchman, who was a passenger too, fell overboard. When he was sinking, I reached through the water to his shock-pate, and drew him up, so that we got him in again. His ducking sobered him a little, and he went to sleep, taking first out of his pocket a book, which he desired I would dry for him. It proved to be my old favorite author, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, in Dutch, finely printed on good paper, with copper cuts, a dress better than I had ever seen it wear in its own language. I have since found that it has been translated into most of the languages of Europe, and suppose it has been more generally read than any other book, except perhaps the Bible. Honest John was the first that I know of who mixed narration and dialogue, a method of writing very engaging to the reader, who in the most interesting parts finds himself, as it were, brought into the company and present at the discourse. Defoe, in his Crusoe, his Maul Flanders, religious courtship, family instructor, and other pieces, has imitated it with success, and Richardson has done the same in his Pamela, etc. Kill Van Kill, the channel separating Staten Island from New Jersey on the north. Samuel Richardson, the father of the English novel, wrote Pamela, Clarissa Harlow, and the history of Sir Charles Grandison novels published in the form of letters when we drew near the island we found it was at a place where there could be no landing there being a great surf on the stony beach so we dropped anchor and swung round towards the shore some people came down to the water edge and hallowed to us as we did to them but the wind was so high and the surf so loud that we could not hear so as to understand each other 
There were canoes on the shore, and we made signs, and hallowed, that they should fetch us, but they either did not understand us, or thought it impracticable. So they went away, and night coming on, we had no remedy but to wait till the wind should abate, and, in the meantime, the boatman and I concluded to sleep, if we could, and so crowded into the scuttle, with the Dutchman, who was still wet, and the spray beating over the head of our boat, leaked through to us, so that we were soon almost as wet as he. In this manner we lay all night with very little rest, but the wind abating the next day we made a shift to reach Amboy before night, having been thirty hours on the water without victuals or any drink but a bottle of filthy rum, the water we'd sailed on being salt. In the evening I found myself very feverish and went to bed, but having read somewhere that cold water drank plentifully was good for a fever, I followed the prescription, sweat plentifully most of the night, my fever left me, and in the morning, crossing the ferry, I proceeded on my journey on foot, having fifty miles to Burlington, where I was told I could find boats that would carry me the rest of the way to Philadelphia. It rained very hard that day. I was thoroughly soaked, and by noon a good deal tired, so I stopped at a poor inn, where I stayed all night, beginning now to wish that I had never left home. I cut so miserable a figure, too, that I found by some questions asked me I was suspected to be some runaway servant, and in danger of being taken up on that suspicion. However, I proceeded the next day, and got in the evening to an inn within eight or ten miles of Burlington, kept by one Dr. Brown. He entered into conversation with me while I took some refreshment, and, finding I had read a little, became very sociable and friendly. Our acquaintance continued as long as he lived. He had been, I imagine, an itinerant doctor, for there was no town in England, or, or country in Europe, of which he could not give a very particular account. He had some letters, and was ingenious, but much of an unbeliever, and wickedly undertook, some years after, to travesty the Bible in a doggerel verse, as Cotton had done Virgil. By this means he set many of the facts in a very ridiculous light, and might have hurt weak minds if his work had been published, but it never was. At his house I lay that night, and the next morning reached Burlington, but had the mortification to find the regular boats were gone a little before my coming, and no other expected to go before Tuesday, this being Saturday, wherefore I returned to an old woman in the town, of whom I had brought gingerbread to eat on the water, and asked her advice. She invited me to lodge at her house until a passage by water could offer, and being tired with my foot travelling, I accepted the invitation. She, understanding I was a printer, would have had me stay at that town and follow my business, being ignorant of the stock necessary to begin with. She was very hospitable, gave me a dinner of ox-cheek and great goodwill, accepting only a pot of ale in return, and I thought myself fixed till Tuesday should come. However, walking in the evening by the side of the river, a boat came by which I found was going towards Philadelphia, with several people in her. They took me in, and as there was no wind, we rowed all the way, and about midnight, not having yet seen the city, some of the company were confident we must have passed it, and would row no further. The others knew not where we were, so we were put toward the shore, got into a creek, landed near an old fence with the rails of which we made a fire, that night being cold, in October, and there we remained till daylight. Then one of the company knew the place to be Cooper's Creek, 
a little above Philadelphia, which we saw as soon as we got out of the creek, and arrived there about eight or nine o'clock on the Sunday morning, and landed at the Market Street Wharf. I have been the most particular in this description of my journey, and shall be so if my first entry into that city, that you may in your mind compare such unlikely beginnings with the future I have since made there. I was in my working dress, my best clothes being to come round by sea. I was dirty from my journey, my pockets were stuffed out with shirts and stockings, and I knew no soul nor where to look for lodging. I was fatigued with travelling, rowing, and want of rest. I was very hungry, and my whole stock of cash consisted of a Dutch dollar and about a shilling in copper. The latter I gave the people of the boat for my passage, who at first refused it on account of my rowing, but I insisted on their taking it, a man being sometimes more generous when he has but a little money than when he has plenty, perhaps though fear of being thought of to have but little. Then I walked up the street, gazing about till near the market-house I met a boy with bread. I had made many a meal on bread, and inquiring where he got it, I went immediately to the baker's he directed me to, in Second Street, and asked for biscuit, intending such as we had in Boston. But they, it seems, were not made in Philadelphia. Then I asked for a three-penny loaf, and was told they had none such so not considering or knowing the difference of money, and the greater cheapness, nor the names of his bread, I bade him give me three penny worth of any sort. He gave me accordingly three great puffy rolls. I was surprised at the quantity, but took it, and having no room in my pockets, walked off with a roll under each arm, and eating the other. Thus I made up Market Street as far as Fourth Street, passing by the door of Mr. Reed, my future wife's father when she, standing at the door, saw me, and thought I made, as I certainly did, a most awkward, ridiculous appearance. Then I turned and went down Chestnut Street, and part of Walnut Street, eating my roll all the way, and coming round I found myself again at Market Street Wharf, near the boat I came in, to which I went for a draught of river water, and being filled with one of my rolls, gave the other two to a woman and her child that came down the river in the boat with us, and were waiting to go farther. Thus refreshed, I walked again up the street, which by this time had many clean-dressed people in it, and who were all walking the same way. I joined them, and thereby was led to the great meeting-house of the Quakers near the market. I sat down among them, and, after looking round a while and hearing nothing said, being very drowsy through labour and want of rest the preceding night, I fell fast asleep, and continued so till the meeting broke up, when one was kind enough to rouse me. This was therefore the first house I was in, or slept in, in Philadelphia. Walking down again toward the street, and looking in the faces of people, I met a young Quaker man, whose countenance I liked, and accosted him, requesting he would tell me where a stranger could get lodging. We were then near the sign of the three mariners. Here, says he, is one place that entertains strangers, but it is not a reputable house. If thee wilt walk with me, I'll show thee a better. He brought me to the crooked billet in Water Street, where I got a dinner, and while I was eating it, several sly questions were asked me, as it seemed to be suspected from my youth and appearance that I might be some runaway. After dinner my sleepiness returned, and being shown to a bed I lay down without undressing, and slept till six in the evening, was called to supper, went to bed again very early, and slept sound till next morning. Then I made myself as 
tidy as I could, and went to Andrew Bradford the printer's. I found in the shop the old man, his father, whom I had seen in New York, and who, travelling on horseback, had got to Philadelphia before me. He introduced me to his son, who received me civilly, gave me a breakfast, but told me he did not at present want a hand, being lately supplied with one. But there was another printer in town, lately set up, one Keimer, who, perhaps, might employ me. If not, I should be welcome to lodge at his house, and he would give me a little work to do now and then, till fuller business should offer. The old gentleman said he would go with me to the new printer, and when we found him, Neighbor, says Bradford, I have brought to see you a young man of your business. Perhaps you may want such a one. He asked me a few questions, put a composing stick in my hand to see how I worked, and then said he would employ me soon, though he had just then nothing for me to do, and, taking old Bradford, whom he had never seen before, to be one of the townspeople that had a good will for him, entered into a conversation on his present undertaking and prospects while Bradford, not discovering that he was the other printer's father, on Keimer's saying he expected soon to get the greatest part of the business into his own hands, drew him on by artful questions, and starting little doubts, to explain all his views, what interest he relied on, and in what manner he intended to proceed. I, who stood by and heard all, saw immediately that one of them was a crafty old sophister, and the other a mere novice. Bradford left me with Keimer, who was greatly surprised when I told him who the old man was. Keimer's printing-house, I found, consisted of an old shattered press and one small worn-out font of English, which he was using himself, composing an elegy on Aquila Rose, before mentioned, an ingenious young man of excellent character, much respected in the town, clerk of the assembly, and a pretty poet. Keimer made verses, too, but very indifferently. He could not be said to write them, for his manner was to compose them in the types directly out of his head. So there being no copy, but one pair of cases, and the elegy likely to require all the letter, no one could help him. I endeavoured to put his press, which he had not yet used, and of which he understood nothing, into order fit to be worked with, and promised to come and print off his elegy as soon as he should have got it ready. I returned to Bradford's, who gave me a little job to do for the present, and there I lodged and dieted. A few days after, Keimer sent for me to print off the elegy, and now he had got another pair of cases, and a pamphlet to reprint, on which he set me to work. These two printers I found poorly qualified for their business. Bradford had not been bred to it, and was very illiterate and Keimer, though something of a scholar, was a mere compositor, knowing nothing of press-work. He had been one of the French prophets, and could act their enthusiastic agitations. At the time he did not profess any particular religion, but something of all on occasion, was very ignorant of the world, and had, as I afterward found, a good deal of the knave in his composition. He did not like my lodging at Bradford's while I worked with him. He had a house, indeed, but without furniture, so he could not lodge me. But he got me a lodging at Mr. Reed's before mentioned, who was the owner of this house, and my chest and clothes being come by this time, I made rather a more respectable appearance in the eyes of Miss Reed than I had done when she first happened to see me eating my roll in the street. Protestants of the south of France, who became fanatical under the persecutions of Louis the Fourteenth, 
and though they had the gift of prophecy, as they had mottoes, no taxes, and liberty of conscience. I began to have some acquaintance among the young people of the town that were lovers of reading, with whom I spent my evenings very pleasantly, and gained money by my industry and frugality. I lived very agreeably, forgetting Boston as much as I could, and not desiring that any there should know where I resided, except my friend Collins, who was in my street, and kept it when I wrote to him. At length an incident happened that sent me back again much sooner than I had intended. I had a brother-in-law, Robert Holmes, master of a sloop, that traded between Boston and Delaware. He being at Newcastle, forty miles below Philadelphia, heard thereof me and wrote me a letter, mentioning the concerns of my friends in Boston at my abrupt departure, assuring me of their good will to me, and that everything would be accommodated to my mind if I would return, to which he exhorted me very earnestly. I wrote an answer to this letter, thanked him for his advice, but stated that my reasons for quitting Boston fully and in such a light as to convince him I was not so wrong as he had apprehended. End of chapter 3 The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin Chapter 4 First Visit to Boston Sir William Keith, Governor of the Province, was then at Newcastle, and Captain Holmes, happening to be in company with him, when my letter came to hand, spoke to him of me, and showed him the letter. The governor read it, and seemed surprised when he was told my age. He said I appeared a young man of promising parts, and therefore should be encouraged. The printers of Philadelphia were wretched ones, and if I could set up there, he made no doubt I should succeed. For his part, he would procure me the public business, and do me every other service in his power. This my brother-in-law afterwards told me in Boston, but I knew as yet nothing of it when, one day, Keimer and I, being at work together near the window, we saw the governor and another gentleman, which proved to be Colonel French of Newcastle, finely dressed, come directly across the street to our house, and heard them at the door. Keimer ran down immediately, thinking it a visit to him, but the governor inquired for me, came up, and with a condescension and politeness I had been quite unused to, made me many compliments, desired to be acquainted with me, blamed me kindly for not having made myself known to him when I first came to the place, and would have me away with him to the tavern, where he was going with Colonel French, to taste, as he said, some excellent Madeira. I was not a little surprised, and Keimer stared like a pig poisoned, I went, however, with the governor and Colonel French to a tavern at the corner of Third Street, and over the Madeira he proposed my setting up my business, laid before me the probabilities of success, and both he and Colonel French assured me I should have their interest and influence in procuring the public business of both governments. On my doubting whether my father would assist me in it, Sir William said he would give me a letter to him, in which he would state the advantages, and he did not doubt of prevailing with him. So it was concluded I should return to Boston in the first vessel, with the governor's letter recommending me to my father. In the meantime, the intention was to keep a secret, and I went on working with Keimer as usual, the governor sending for me now and then to dine with him, a very great honor, I thought it, 
and conversing with me in the most affable, familiar, and friendly manner imaginable. About the end of April 1724, a little vessel offered for Boston. I took leave of Keimer, as going to see my friends. The governor gave me an ample letter, saying many flattering things of me to my father, and strongly recommending the project of my setting up in Philadelphia as a thing that must make my fortune. We struck on a shoal in going down the bay, and sprung a leak. We had a blistering time at sea, and were obliged to pump almost continuously, at which I took my turn. We arrived safe, however, at Boston in about a fortnight. I had been absent seven months, and my friends had heard nothing of me, for my brother Holmes was not yet returned, and had not written about me. My unexpected appearance surprised the family. All were, however, very glad to see me, and made me welcome, except my brother. I went to see him at his printing-house. I was better dressed than ever while in his service, having a genteel new suit from head to foot, a watch, and my pockets lined with near five pounds sterling in silver. He received me not very frankly, looked me all over, and turned to his work again. The journeymen were inquisitive where I had been, what sort of a country it was, and how I liked it. I praised it much, the happy life I led in it, expressing strongly my intention of returning to it, and one of them asked what kind of money we had there. I produced a handful of silver, and spread it before them, which was a kind of rary show, a peep-show in a box. They had not been used to, paper money being the money of Boston. Begin footnote, there were no mints in the colonies, so the metal money was of foreign coinage, and not nearly so common as paper money, which was printed in large quantities in America, even in small denominations. End footnote. Then I took the opportunity of letting them see my watch, and lastly, my brother still grum and sullen, I gave them a piece of eight, Spanish dollar about equivalent to our dollar, to drink, and took my leave. This visit of mine offended him extremely, for when my mother some time after spoke to him of a reconciliation, and of her wishes to see us on good terms together, and that we might live for the future as brothers, he said I had insulted him in such a manner before his people that he could never forget or forgive it. In this, however, he was mistaken. My father received the governor's letter with some apparent surprise, but said little of it to me for some days. When Captain Holmes returned, he showed it to him and asked him if he knew Keith and what kind of man he was, adding his opinion that he must be of small discretion to think of setting a boy up in a business who wanted yet three years of being a man's estate. Holmes said what he could in favor of the project, but my father was clear in the impropriety of it, and at last gave a flat denial to it. Then he wrote a civil letter to Sir William, thanking him for the patronage he had so kindly offered me, but declining to assist me as yet in setting up, I being, in his opinion, too young to be trusted with the management of a business so important, and for which the preparation must be so expensive. My friend and companion Collins, who was a clerk in the post-office, pleased with the account I gave him of my new country, determined to go thither also, and while I waited for my father's determination, he set out before me by land to Rhode Island, leaving his books, which were a pretty collection of mathematics and natural philosophy, to come with mine and me to New York, where he proposed to wait for me. 
my father though he did not approve sir william's proposition was yet pleased that i had been able to obtain so advantageous a character from a person of such note where i had resided and that i had been so industrious and careful as to equip myself so handsomely in so short a time therefore seeing no prospect of an accommodation between my brother and me he gave his consent to my returning again to philadelphia advised me to behave respectfully to the people there endeavouring to obtain the general esteem and avoid lampooning and libelling to which he thought i had too much inclination telling me that by steady industry and a prudent parsimony i might save enough by the time i was twenty and one to set me up and that if i came near the matter he would help me out with the rest this was all i could obtain except some small gifts as tokens of his and my mother's love when i embarked again for new york now with their approbation and their blessing the sloop putting in at newport rhode island i visited my brother john who had been married and settled there some years he received me very affectionately for he always loved me a friend of his one vernon having some money due him in philadelphia about thirty-five pounds currency desired that i would receive it for him and keep it till i had his directions what to remit it in accordingly he gave me an order this afterwards occasioned me a good deal of uneasiness at newport we took a number of passengers for new york among which were two young women companions and a grave sensible matron-like quaker woman with her attendants i had shown an obliging readiness to do her some little services which impressed her i suppose with a degree of good will toward me therefore when she saw a daily growing familiarity between me and the two young women which they appeared to encourage she took me aside and said young man i am concerned for thee as thou hast no friend in thee and seems not to know much of the world or of the snares youth is exposed to depend upon it those are very bad women i can see it in all their actions and if thee art not upon thy guard they will draw thee into some danger they are strangers to thee and i advise thee in a friendly concern for thy welfare to have no acquaintance with them as i seemed at first not to think so ill of them as she did she mentioned some things she had observed and heard that had escaped my notice what now convinced me she was right i thanked her for her kind advice and promised to follow it when we arrived at new york they told me where they lived and invited me to come and see them but i avoided it and it was well i did for the next day the captain missed a silver spoon and some other things that had been taken out of his cabin and knowing that these were a couple of strumpets he got a warrant to search their lodgings found the stolen goods and had the thieves punished so though we had escaped a sunken rock which we scraped upon in the passage i thought this escapade of rather more importance to me at new york i found my friend collins who had arrived there some time before me we had been intimate from children and had read the same books together but he had the advantage of more time for reading and studying and a wonderful genius for mathematical learning in which he far outstripped me while i lived in boston most of my hours of leisure for conversation were spent with him and he continued a sober as well as an industrious lad was much respected for his learning by several of the clergy and other gentlemen and seemed to promise making a good figure in life 
but during my absence he had acquired a habit of sotting with brandy and i found by his own account and what i heard from others that he had been drunk every day since his arrival in new york and behaved very oddly he had gamed too and lost his money so that i was obliged to discharge his lodgings and defray his expenses to and at philadelphia which proved extremely inconvenient to me the governor of new york burnett son of bishop burnett hearing from the captain that a young man one of his passengers had a great many books desired he would bring me to see him i waited upon him accordingly and should have taken collins with me but that he was not sober the governor treated me with great civility showed me his library which was a very large one and we had a good deal of conversation about books and authors this was the second governor who had done me the honour to take notice of me which to a poor boy like me was very pleasing we proceeded to philadelphia i received on the way vernon's money without which we could hardly have finished our journey collins wished to be employed in some counting-house but whether they discovered his dramming by his breath or by his behaviour though he had some recommendations he met with no success in any application and continued lodging and boarding at the same house with me and at my expense knowing i had that money of vernon's he was continually borrowing of me still promising repayment as soon as he should be in business at length he had got so much of it that i was distressed to think what i should do in case of being called on to remit it his drinking continued about which we sometimes quarrelled for when a little intoxicated he was very fractious once in a boat on the delaware with some other young men he refused to row in his turn i will be rowed home says he we will not row for you says i you must or stay all night on the water says he just as you please the others said let us row what signifies it but my mind being soured with his other conduct i continued to refuse so he swore he would make me row and throw me overboard and coming along stepping on the thwarts towards me when he came up and struck at me i clapped my hand under his crutch and rising pitched him head foremost into the river i knew he was a good swimmer and so was under little concern about him but before he could get round to lay hold of the boat we had a few strokes pulled her out of his reach and ever when he drew near the boat we asked if he would row striking a few strokes to slide her away from him he was ready to die with vexation and obstinately would not promise to row however seeing him at last beginning to tire we lifted him and brought him home dripping wet in the evening we hardly exchanged a civil word afterward and a west indian captain who had a commission to procure a tutor for the sons of a gentleman at barbados happening to meet with him agreed to carry him thither he left me then promising to remit the first money he should receive in order to discharge the debt but i never heard of him after breaking into this money of vernon's was one of the first great errata of my life and this affair showed that my father was not much out in his judgment when he supposed me too young to manage business of importance but sir william on reading his letter said he was too prudent there was great difference in persons and discretion did not always accompany years nor was youth always without it and since he will not set you up says he i will do it myself give me an inventory of the things necessary to be had from england and i will send for them 
you shall repay me when you are able. I am resolved to have a good printer here, and I am sure you must succeed. This was spoken with such an appearance of cordiality that I had not the least doubt of his meaning, and what he said, I had hitherto kept the proposition of my setting up a secret in Philadelphia, and I still kept it. Had it been known that I depended on the governor, probably some friend that knew him better would have advised me not to rely on him, as I afterwards heard it was his known character to be liberal of promises which he never meant to keep. Yet, unsolicited as he was by me, how could I think his generous offer insincere? I believed him one of the best men of the world. I presented him an inventory of a little print-house, amounting to my computing to about one hundred pounds sterling. He liked it, but asked me if my being on the spot in England to choose the types and see that everything was good of the kind might not be of some advantage. Then says he, when there you may make acquaintances and establish correspondence in the bookselling and stationery way. I agreed that this might be advantageous. Then says he, get yourself ready to go with Annis, which was the annual ship and the only one at that time usually passing between London and Philadelphia. But it would be some months before Annis sailed, so I continued working with Keimer, fretting about the money Collins had got from me, and in daily apprehension of being called upon by Vernon, which, however, did not happen for some years after. I believe I have omitted mentioning that in my first voyage from Boston being becalmed off Block Island, our people set about catching cod, and hauled up a great many. Hitherto I had stuck to my resolution of not eating animal food, and on this occasion I considered it with my master, Tyrone, the taking every fish as a kind of unprovoked murder, since none of them had, or ever could, do us any injury that might justify the slaughter. All this seemed to be reasonable, but I had formerly been a great lover of fish, and, when this came hot out of the frying-pan, it smelt admirably well. I balanced some time between principle and inclination, till I reckoned that, when the fish were opened, I saw smaller fish taken out of their stomachs. Then thought I, if you eat one another, I don't see why we mayn't eat you. So I dined upon cod very heartily, and continued to eat with other people, returning now only and then occasionally to a vegetable diet. So convenient a thing is it to be a reasonable creature, since it enables one to find or make a reason for everything one has a mind to do. End of chapter 4 The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin Chapter 5 Early Friends in Philadelphia Keimer and I lived on a pretty good familiar footing, and agreed tolerably well, for he suspected nothing of my setting up. He retained a great deal of his old enthusiasms, and loved argumentation. We, therefore, had many disputations. I used to work him so with my Socratic method, and I had trepanned him so often by questions apparently so distant from any point he had in hand, and yet by degrees led to the point and brought him into difficulties and contradictions that at last he grew ridiculously cautious, and would hardly answer me the most common question, without asking first, 
what do you intend to make from that? However, it gave him so high an opinion of my abilities in the confuting way, that he seriously proposed my being his colleague in the project he had of setting up a new sect. He was to preach the doctrines, and I was to confound all opponents. When he came to explain with me upon the doctrines, I found several conundrums, which I objected to, unless I might have my way a little too, and introduce some of mine. Keimer wore his beard at full length, because somewhere in the Mosaic law it is said, Thou shalt not mar the corners of thy beard. He likewise kept the seventh-day Sabbath, and these two points were essential to him. I disliked both, but agreed to admit them upon condition of his adopting the doctrine of using no animal food. I doubt, said he, my constitution will not bear that. I assured him it would, and that he would be better for it. He was usually a great glutton, and I promised myself some diversion in half-starving him. He agreed to try the practice, if I would keep him company. I did so, and we held it for three months. We had our victuals dressed and brought to us regularly by a woman in the neighborhood, who had from me a list of forty dishes to be prepared for us at different times, in all which there were neither fish, flesh, nor fowl. The whim suited me the better at this time, from the cheapness of it, not costing us above eighteen pence sterling each week. I have since kept several lents most strictly, leaving the common diet for that, and that for the common, abruptly, without the least inconvenience, so that I think there is a little in the advice of making those changes by easy gradations. I went on pleasantly, but poor Keemer suffered grievously, tired of the project, longed for the flesh-pots of Egypt, and ordered a roast pig. He invited me and two women friends to dine with him, but it being brought too soon upon table, he could not resist the temptation, and ate the whole before we came. I made some courtship during this time to Miss Reed. I had a great respect and affection for her, and had some reason to believe she had the same for me. But, as I was about to take a long voyage, and we were both very young, only a little above eighteen, it was thought most prudent by her mother to prevent our going too far at present, as a marriage, if it was to take place, would be more convenient after my return, when I should be, as I expected, set up in my business. Perhaps, too, she thought my expectations not so well founded as I imagined them to be. My chief acquaintances at this time were Charles Osborne, Joseph Watson, and James Ralph, all lovers of reading. The two first were clerks in an eminent scrivener or conveyancer in the town, Charles Brockton. The other was clerk to a merchant. Watson was a pious, sensible young man of great integrity. The others rather more lax in their principles of religion, particularly Ralph, who, as well as Collins, had been unsettled by me, for which they both made me suffer. Osborne was sensible, candid, frank, sincere, and affectionate to his friends, but, in literary matters, too fond of criticizing. Ralph was ingenious, genteel in his manners, and extremely eloquent. I think I never knew a prettier talker. Both of them were great admirers of poetry, and began to try their hands in little pieces. 
any pleasant walks we four had together on sundays into the woods near shukil where we read to one another and conferred on what we read ralph was inclined to pursue the study of poetry not doubting but he might become eminent in it and make his fortune by it alleging that the best poets must when they first begin to write make as many faults as he did osborne dissuaded him assured him he had no genius for poetry and advised him to think of nothing beyond the business he was bred to that in the mercantile way though he had no stock he might by his diligence and punctuality recommend himself to employment as a factor and in time acquire wherewith to trade on his own account i approved the amusing one's self with poetry now and then so far as to improve one's language but no farther on this it was proposed that we should each of us at our next meeting produce a piece of our own composing in order to improve by our mutual observations criticisms and corrections as language and expression were what we had in view we excluded all considerations of invention by agreeing that the task should be a version of the eighteenth psalm which describes the descent of a deity when the time of our meeting drew nigh ralph called on me first and let me know his piece was ready i told him i had been busy and having little inclination had done nothing he then showed me his piece for my opinion and i much approved it as it appeared to me to have great merit now says he osborne never will allow the least merit in anything of mine but makes one thousand criticisms out of mere envy he is not so jealous of you i wish therefore you would take this piece and produce it as yours i will pretend not to have had time and so produce nothing we shall then see what he will say to it it was agreed and i immediately transcribed it that it might appear to be in my own hand we met watson's performance was read there was some beauties in it but many defects osborne's was read it was much better ralph did it justice remarked some faults but applauded the beauties he himself had nothing to produce i was backward seemed desirous of being excused and had not sufficient time to correct etc but no excuse could be admitted produce i must i was read and repeated watson and osborne gave up the contest and joined in applauding it ralph only made some criticism and proposed some amendments but i defended my text osborne was against ralph and told him he was no better a critic than poet so he dropped the argument as they two went home together osborne expressed himself still more strongly in favour of what he thought my production having restrained himself before as he said least i should think it flattery but who would have imagined said he that franklin had been capable of such a performance such panting such force such fire he has even improved the original in his common conversation he seems to have no choice of words he hesitates and blunders and yet good god how he writes when we next met ralph discovered the trick we had played on him and osborne was a little laughed at this transaction fixed ralph in his resolution of becoming a poet i did all that i could to dissuade him from it but he continued scribbling verses till pope cured him Again, footnote in one of the later editions of the duncanade occur the following lines silence ye wolves where ralph to cynthia howls and makes night hideous answer him ye owls 
To this the poet adds the following note. James Ralph, a name inserted after the first editions, not known until he writ a swearing piece called Sweeney, very abusive of Dr. Swift, Mr. Gay, and myself. End footnote. He became, however, a pretty good prose writer. More of him hereafter. But as I may not have occasioned again to mention the other two, I shall just remark here that Watson died in my arms a few years after, much lamented being the best of our set. Osborne went to the West Indies, where he became an eminent lawyer, and made money, but died young. He and I made a serious agreement that the one who happened first to die should, if possible, make a friendly visit to the other, and acquaint him of how he found things in that separate state. But he never fulfilled his promise. End of chapter 5 The Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin Chapter 6 A First Visit to London The governor, seeming to like my company, had me frequently to his house, and his setting me up always mentioned as a fixed thing. I was to take with me letters recommendary to a number of his friends, besides the letter of credit, to furnish me with the necessary money for purchasing the press and types, paper, etc., for these letters I was appointed to call at different times when they were to be ready, but a future time was still named. Thus we went on till the ship, whose departure too had been several times postponed, was on the point of sailing. Then when I called to take my leave and receive the letters, his secretary, Dr. Bard, came out to me and said the governor was extremely busy in writing but would be down at Newcastle before the ship, and there the letters would be delivered to me. Ralph, though married and having one child, had determined to accompany me in this voyage. It was thought he intended to establish a correspondence and obtain goods to sell on commission, but I found afterward that, through some discontent with his wife's relations, he proposed to leave her on their hands and never return again having taken leave of my friends, and interchanged some promises with Miss Reed, I left Philadelphia in the ship which anchored at Newcastle. The governor was there, but when I went to his lodgings the secretary came to me from him with the civilest message in the world that he could not then see me, being engaged in business of the utmost importance, but should send the letters to me on board and wished me heartily a good voyage and a speedy return, etc. I returned on board a little puzzled, but still not doubting. Mr. Andrew Hamilton, a famous lawyer of Philadelphia, had taken passage in the same ship for himself and son, and with Mr. Denham, a Quaker merchant, and Messrs. Orion and Russell, masters of an ironwork in Maryland, had engaged the great cabin, so that Ralph and I were forced to take up with a berth in the steerage and none on board knowing us, were considered as ordinary persons. But Mr. Hamilton and his son, it was James, since governor, returned from Newcastle to Philadelphia, the father being recalled by a great fee to plead for a seized ship, and, just before we sailed, Colonel French, coming on board, and showing me great respect, I was more taken notice of, and with my friend Ralph, invited by other gentlemen to come into the cabin, there being now room. Accordingly, we removed thither. 
Understanding that Colonel French had brought on board the governor's dispatches, I asked the captain for those letters that were to be under my care. He said all were put in the bag together, and he could not then come at them, but before we landed in England I should have an opportunity of picking them out, so I was satisfied for the present, and we proceeded on our voyage. We had a sociable company in the cabin, and lived uncommonly well, having the addition of all Mr. Hamilton's stores, who had laid in plentifully. In this passage Mr. Denham contracted a friendship for me that continued during his life. The voyage was otherwise not a pleasant one, as we had a great deal of bad weather. When we came to the channel the captain kept his word with me, and gave me an opportunity of examining the bag for the governor's letters. I found none upon which my name was put as under my care. I picked out six or seven that by the handwriting I thought might be the promised letters, especially as one of them was directed to Basket, the king's printer, and another to some stationer. We arrived in London the 24th of December, 1724. I waited upon the stationer, who came first in my way, delivering the letter as from Governor Keith. I don't know such a person, says he, but opening the letter, oh, this is from Riddlesenden. I have lately found him to be a complete rascal, and I will have nothing to do with him, nor receive any letters from him. So, putting the letter into my hands, he turned on his heel and left me to serve some customer. I was surprised to find that these were not the governor's letters, and, after recollecting and comparing circumstances, I began to doubt his sincerity. I found my friend Denham, and opened the whole affair to him. He let me into Keith's character, told me there was not in the least probability that he had written any letters for me, that no one who knew him had the smallest dependence on him, and he laughed at the notion of the governor's giving me a letter of credit, having, he said, no credit to give. On my expressing some concern about what I should do, he advised me to endeavor getting some employment in the way of my business. Among the printers here, said he, you will improve yourself, and when you return to America, you will set up to greater advantage. We both of us happened to know, as well as the stationer, that Riddlesenden, the attorney, was a very knave. He had half-ruined Miss Reed's father by persuading him to be bound for him. By this letter, it appeared there was a secret scheme on foot to the prejudice of Hamilton, supposed to be then coming over with us, and that Keith was concerned in it with Riddlesenden. Denham, who was a friend of Hamilton's, thought he ought to be acquainted with it. So, when he arrived in England, which was soon after, partly from resentment and ill-will to Keith and Riddlesenden, and partly from good-will to him, I waited on him and gave him the letter. He thanked me cordially, the information being of importance to him, and from that time he became my friend, greatly to my advantage afterwards on many occasions. But what shall we think of a governor's playing such pitiful tricks and imposing so grossly on a poor ignorant boy? It was a habit he had acquired. He wished to please everybody, and, having little to give, he gave expectations. He was otherwise an ingenious, sensible man, a pretty good writer, and a good governor for the people, though not for his constituents. The proprieties, whose instructions he sometimes disregarded, 
Several of our best laws were of his planning and passed during his administration. Ralph and I were inseparable companions. We took lodgings together in Little Britain, at three shillings and sixpence a week, as much as we could then afford. He found some relations, but they were poor and unable to assist him. He now let me know his intentions of remaining in London, and that he never meant to return to Philadelphia. He had brought no money with him, the whole he could muster having been expended paying his passage. I had fifteen pistoles, so he borrowed occasionally of me to subsist while he was looking out for business. He first endeavoured to get into the playhouse, believing himself qualified for an actor. But Wilkes, to whom he applied, advised him candidly not to think of that employment, as it was impossible he should succeed in it. Then he proposed to Roberts, a publisher in Paternoster Row, to write for him a weekly paper, like the Spectator, on certain conditions, which Roberts did not approve. Then he endeavoured to get employment as a hackney writer, to copy for the stationers and lawyers about the temple, but could find no vacancy. I immediately got into work at Palmer's, then a famous printing-house, in Bartholomew Close, and there I continued near a year. I was pretty diligent, but spent with Ralph a good deal of my earnings in going to plays and other places of amusement. We had together consumed all of my pistoles, and now just rubbed on from hand to mouth. He seemed quite to forget his wife and child, and I by degrees, my engagements with Miss Reed, to whom I never wrote more than one letter, and that was to let her know I was not likely soon to return. That was another of the great errata of my life, which I should wish to correct if I were to live it over again. In fact, by our expenses, I was constantly kept unable to pay my passage. At Palmer's I was employed in composing for the second edition of Wollaston's Religion of Nature. Some of his reasonings not appearing to me well-founded, I wrote a little metaphysical piece in which I made remarks on them. It was entitled, A Dissension on Liberty and Necessity, Pleasure and Pain. I inscribed it to my friend Ralph. I printed a small number. It occasioned my being more considered by Mr. Palmer as a young man of some ingenuity, though he seriously expostulated with me upon the principles of my pamphlet, which to him appeared abominable. My printing this pamphlet was another erratum. While I lodged in Little Britain, I made an acquaintance with one Wilcox, a bookseller, whose shop was at the next door. He had an immense collection of second-hand books. Circulating libraries were not then in use, but we agreed that, on certain reasonable terms, which I have now forgotten, I might take, read, and return any of his books. This I esteemed a great advantage, and I made as much use of it as I could. My pamphlet, by some means falling into the hands of one Lyons, a surgeon, author of a book entitled The Infallibility of Human Judgment. It occasioned an acquaintance between us. He took great notice of me, called on me often to converse on those subjects, carried me to the house, a pale alehouse in a lane, Cheapside, and introduced me to Mr. Manderville, author of The Fable of the Bees, who had clubbed there, of which he was the soul, being a most facetious man, 
entertaining companion. Lyons, too, introduced me to Dr. Pemberton, at Bastian's coffee-house, who promised to give me an opportunity, some time or other, of seeing Sir Isaac Newton, of which I was extremely desirous, but this never happened. I had brought over a few curiosities, among which the principal was a purse made of the asbestos, which purifies by fire. Sir Hans Sloane heard of it, came to see me, and invited me to his house in Bloomsbury Square, where he showed me all his curiosities, and persuaded me to let him add that to the number, for which he paid me handsomely. In our house there lodged a young woman, a milliner, who, I think, had a shop in the cloisters. She had been genteelly bred, was sensible and lively, and of most pleasing conversation. Ralph read plays to her in the evenings. They grew intimate. She took another lodging, and he followed her. They lived together for some time, but he being still out of business, and her income not sufficient to maintain them with her child, he took a resolution of going from London to try for a country school, which he thought himself well qualified to undertake, as he wrote an excellent hand, and was a master of arithmetic and accounts. This, however, he deemed a business below him, and confident of future better fortune, when he should be unwilling to have it known that he was once so meanly employed, he changed his name, and did me the honour to assume mine, for I soon after had a letter from him, acquainting me that he was settled in a small village, in Berkshire I think it was, where he taught reading and writing to ten or a dozen boys at sixpence per week, recommending Mrs. T. to my care, and desiring me to write to him, directing for Mr. Franklin, schoolmaster, at such a place. He continued to write frequently, sending me large specimens of an epic poem which he was then composing, and desiring my remarks and corrections. These I gave him from time to time, but endeavoured rather to discourage his proceeding. One of Young's satires was just then published. I copied and sent him a great part of it, which set in a strong light the folly of pursuing the muses with any hope of advancement by them. All this was in vain. Sheets of the poem continued to come by every post. In the meantime, Mrs. T., having on his account lost her friends in business, was often in distress, and used to send for me, and borrow what I could spare to help her out of them. I grew fond of her company, and being at that time under no religious restraint, and presuming upon my importance to her, I attempted familiarities, another erratum, which she repulsed with a proper resentment, and acquainted him with my behaviour. This made a breach between us, and when he returned again to London, he let me know he thought I had cancelled all the obligations he had been under to me, so I found I was never to expect his repaying me what I lent to him, or advanced to him. This, however, was not then of much consequence, as he was totally unable, and in the loss of his friendship I found myself relieved from a burden. I now began to think of getting a little money beforehand, and expecting better work. I left Palmer's to work at Watts, near Lincoln's Inn Fields, a still greater printing-house. Here I continued all the rest of my stay in London. At my first admission into this printing-house, I took to working at press, imagining I felt a want of the bodily exercise I had been used to in America, where press-work is mixed with composing. I drank only water, 
and the other workmen near fifty in number were great guzzlers of beer on occasion i carried up and down the stairs a large form of types in each hand when others carried but one in both hands they wondered to see from this and several instances what the water american as they called me was stronger than themselves who drank strong beer we had an alehouse boy who attended always in the house to supply the workmen my companion at the press drank every day a pint before breakfast a pint at breakfast with his bread and cheese a pint between breakfast and dinner a pint at dinner a pint in the afternoon about six o'clock and another when he had done his day's work i thought it a detestable custom but it was necessary he supposed to drink strong beer that he might be strong to labour i endeavoured to convince him that the bodily strength afforded by beer could only be in proportion to the grain or flour in the barley dissolved in the water of which it was made that there was more flour in a pennyworth of bread and therefore if he would eat that with a pint of water it would give him more strength than a quart of beer he drank on however and had four or five shillings to pay out of his wages every saturday night for that muddling liquor an expense i was free from and thus these poor devils kept themselves always under watts after some weeks desiring to have me in the composing room i left the pressman a new bienvenue or sum for drink being five shillings was demanded of me by the compositors i thought it an imposition as i had paid below the master thought it too and forbade my paying it i stood about two or three weeks was accordingly considered as an excommunicate and had so many little pieces of private mischief done me by mixing my sorts transposing my pages breaking my matter etc etc if i were ever so little out of the room and all ascribed to the chapel ghost which they said ever haunted those not regularly admitted that notwithstanding the master's protection i found myself obliged to comply and pay the money convinced of the folly of being on ill terms with those one is to live with continually begin footnote franklin now left the work of operating the printing presses which was largely a matter of manual labor and began setting type which required more skill and intelligence and footnote i was now on a fair footing with them and soon acquired considerable influence i proposed some reasonable alterations in their chapel laws and carried them against all opposition from my example a great part of them left their middling breakfast of beer and bread and cheese finding they could with me be supplied from a neighbouring house with a large porringer of hot water gruel sprinkled with pepper crumbed with bread and a bit of butter in it for the price of a pint of beer viz three halfpence this was a more comfortable as well as cheaper breakfast and keep their heads clearer those who continued sotting with beer all day were often by not paying out of credit at the alehouse and used to make interest with me to get beer their light as they phased it being out i watched the pay table on saturday night and collected what i stood engaged for them having to pay sometimes near thirty shillings a week on their accounts thus and my being esteemed a pretty good rigite that is a jocular verbal satirist supported my consequence in the society 
by constant attendance, I never making a St. Monday, recommended me to the master, and my uncommon quickness at composing occasioned my being put upon all work of dispatch, which was generally better paid. So I went now very agreeably. Begin footnote. A printing house is called a chapel, because Caxton, the first English printer, did his printing in a chapel connected with Westminster Abbey. St. Monday is a holy day taken to prolong the dissipation of Saturday's wages. End of footnotes. My lodging in Little Britain being too remote, I found another in Duke Street opposite the Roman chapel. It was two pair of stairs backwards at an Italian warehouse. A widow lady kept the house. She had a daughter and a maid-servant and a journeyman who attended the warehouse, but lodged abroad. After sending to inquire my character at the house where I had last lodged, she agreed to take me at the same rate, three shillings sixpence per week, cheaper, as she said, from the protection she expected in having a man lodge in the house. She was a widow, an elderly woman, and had been bred a Protestant, being a clergyman's daughter, but was converted to the Catholic religion by her husband, whose memory she much revered, had lived much among people of distinction, and knew a thousand anecdotes of them as far back as the times of Charles the Second. She was lame in her knees, with the gout, and therefore seldom stirred out of her room, so sometimes wanted company, and hers was so highly amusing to me that I was sure to spend an evening with her whenever she desired it. Our supper was only half an anchovy each, on a very little strip of bread and butter, and half a pint of ale between us, but the entertainment was in her conversation. My always keeping good hours and giving little trouble in the family made her unwilling to part with me, so that when I talked of a lodging I had heard of nearer my business for two shillings a week, which meant I was now on saving money, made some difference. She bid me not think of it, for she would abate me two shillings a week for the future, so I remained with her at one shilling and sixpence as long as I stayed in London. In a garret of her house there lived a maiden lady of seventy, in the most retired manner of which my landlady gave me this account, that she, being a Roman Catholic, had been sent abroad when young, and lodged in a nunnery with the intent of becoming a nun. But the country not agreeing with her, she returned to England, where, there being no nunnery, she had vowed to lead a life of a nun as near as might be done in those circumstances. Accordingly, she had given all her estate to charitable uses, reserving only twelve pounds a year to live on, and out of this sum she still gave a great deal to charity, living herself on water-gruel only, and using no fire but to boil it. She had lived many years in that garret, being permitted to remain there gratis by successive Catholic tenants of the house below, as they deemed it a blessing to have her there. A priest visited her to confess her every day. I have asked her, said my landlady, how she, as she lived, could possibly find so much employment for a confessor. Oh, she said, it is impossible to avoid vain thoughts. I was permitted once to visit her. She was cheerful and polite, and conversed pleasantly. The room was clean, but had no other furniture than a maltus, a table with a crucifix and a book a stool which she gave me to sit on, and a picture over the chimney of St. Veronica, displaying her handkerchief with the miraculous figure of Christ's bleeding face on it, which she explained to me with great seriousness. 
She looked pale, but was never sick, and I gave it as another instance on how small an income, life and health, may be supported. At Watt's printing-house I contracted an acquaintance with an ingenious young man, one Wygate, who, having healthy relations, had been better educated than most printers, was a tolerable Latinist, spoke French, and loved reading. I taught him and a friend of his to swim at twice going into the river, and they soon became good swimmers. They introduced me to some gentlemen from the country who went to Chelsea by water to see the college and Don Saltero's curiosities. In our return, at the request of the company whose curiosity Wygate had excited, I stripped and leapt into the river and swam from near Chelsea to Blackfriars, performing on the way many feats of activity, both upon and under water, that surprised and pleased those to whom they were novelties. Begin footnote. The story is that she met Christ on his way to crucifixion and offered him her handkerchief to wipe the blood from his face, after which the handkerchief always bore the image of Christ's bleeding face. James Salter, a former servant of Hans Sloan, lived in Cheney Walk, Chelsea. His house, a barber shop, was known as Don Salerto's coffee house. The curiosities were in glass cases, and constituted an amazing and motley collection, a petrified crab from China, a liquefied hog, Job's tears, Madagascar lances, William the Conqueror's flaming sword, and Henry the Eighth's coat of mail. The swim was of about three miles. End of footnote. I had from a child been ever delighted in this exercise, had studied and practiced all Trevner's motions and positions, added some of my own, aiming at the graceful and easy as well as the useful. All these I took this occasion of exhibiting to the company, and was much flattered by their admiration. And Wygate, who was desirous of becoming a master, grew more and more attached to me on that account, as well as from the similarity of our studies. He at length proposed to me travelling all over Europe together, supporting ourselves everywhere by working at our business. I was once inclined to it, but mentioned it to my good friend Mr. Denham, with whom I often spent an hour when I had leisure. He dissuaded me from it, advising me to think only of returning to Pennsylvania, which he was now about to do. I must record one trait of this good man's character. He had formerly been in business at Bristol, but failed in debt to a number of people, compounded and went to America. Thereby a close application to business as a merchant, he acquired a plentiful fortune in a few years. Returning to England in the ship with me, he invited his old creditors to an entertainment at which he thanked them for the easy composition they had favored with him, and when they expected nothing but the treat, every man at the first remove found under his plate an order on a banker for the full amount of the unpaid remainder with interest. He now told me he was about to return to Philadelphia and should carry over a great quantity of goods in order to open a store there. He proposed to take me over as his clerk to keep his books, in which he would instruct me, copy his letters, and attend the store. He added that as soon as I should be acquainted with mercantile business, he would promote me by sending me with a cargo of flour and bread, etc., to the West Indies, and procure me commission from others which would be profitable 
and if I managed well, would establish me handsomely. The thing pleased me, for I was grown tired of London, remembering with pleasure the happy months I had spent in Pennsylvania, and wished again to see it. Therefore I immediately agreed on the terms of fifty pounds a year, about one hundred sixty-seven dollars, Pennsylvania money, less indeed than my present gettings as a compositor, but affording a better prospect. I took leave of printing as though forever, and was daily employed in the new business, going about it with Mr. Denham among the tradesmen to purchase various articles and seeing them packed up, doing errands, calling upon workmen to dispatch, etc., and when all was on board I had a few days' leisure. On one of these days I was, to my surprise, sent for by a great man, I knew only by name, a Sir William Wyndham, and I waited upon him. He had heard by some means or other of my swimming from Chelsea to Blackfriars, and my teaching Wygate and another young man to swim in a few hours. He had two sons about to set out on their travels. He wished to have them first taught swimming, and proposed to gratify me handsomely if I would teach them. They were not yet come to town, and my stay was uncertain, so I could not undertake it. But from this incident, I thought it likely that if I were to remain in England and open a swimming school, I might get a good deal of money, and it struck me so strongly that the overture seemed sooner made me, perhaps I should not so soon have returned to America. After many years, you and I had something of more importance to do with one of these sons of Sir William Wyndham become Earl of Edgemont, which I shall mention in its place. Thus I spent about eighteen months in London, most part of the time I worked hard at my business, and spent but little upon myself, except in seeing plays and in books. My friend Ralph had kept me poor. He owed me about twenty-seven pounds, which I was now never likely to receive, a great sum out of my small earnings. I loved him, notwithstanding, for he had many admirable qualities. I had by no means improved my fortune, but I had picked up some very ingenious acquaintance, whose conversation was of great advantage to me, and I had read considerably. End of chapter 6